Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast and welcome to the last days of the Year of the Ox as we approach with some considerable trepidation the Year of the Tiger. There'll be no fireworks and there's none of the traditional New Year markets here in Hong Kong as we ride out what's being called the fifth wave of the pandemic and each day we're reading of new outbreaks and rising infections. My name is Jared Watt, still working from home instead of the studios of the South China Morning Post and while the gaze of the international media turns to Beijing in the lead-up to the Winter Olympics, this week we're headed back to Brussels to hear of the recent escalation in Beijing's dispute with Lithuania over its opening of a Taiwan representative office in its capital city, Vilnius. Finbar Birmingham's back to unpack what it means now the European Union has announced it's taking China to the court of the World Trade Organization over its unofficial trade embargo what's being called a shadow boycott, of all goods made in Lithuania. Beijing's people say this is between China and Lithuania, but there's a growing number of European nations that are saying otherwise. But first, we're headed to Washington to find out about a plus-size piece of legislation. It's got significant proposals on everything from Xinjiang to Taiwan to the teaching of Cantonese in American universities. There's also an indication that this diplomatic meeting known as the Quad bringing the US together with Japan, India and Australia, is about to receive a significant boost in strategic importance. It's your own personal banquet of geopolitical news, so let's tuck in. Jacob Fromer is in our Washington bureau, and we can only assume he's been heroically plunging through the 2,912 pages of the America Competes Act that was presented to the US House of Representatives on Tuesday night. Jacob, hello. How are the eyes holding up? Hi, Jared. Uh, it's nice to be back on the podcast. I'd say I'm about halfway done with the table of contents so far. <laughs> Jacob, you're far too modest. I, I know how you work and I know you've been pouring through this document and there's so much to get into it. But let me just start with the fact that it's called the America Competes Act. But there's really only one country this bill is aimed at. It's all about China. It's competing with China in the manufacture of semiconductors. It's competing for allies in the Indo-Pacific. It's competing on propaganda, even competing over what Chinese languages are taught in universities in the US. How is this being framed by the White House? Because it's not a White House bill, is it? It's not Joe Biden's. It's a bipartisan piece of legislation. Right. There is no doubt what this bill is all about. This is about China. It's about U.S. competition with China, you know, as you said, on the full spectrum of fronts. And if you start going through the text of the bill, you see very quickly, you know, if you look for pretty much any 
major issue in U.S.-China relations, any point of contention or conflict between the two countries, there's a good bet that you'll be able to find something on it in this bill or maybe more. So there are all kinds of provisions related to Taiwan and Hong Kong and Xinjiang. There are things in there meant to strengthen U.S. alliances. And then you have all kinds of programs that are supposed to help the U.S. compete economically against China. You know, the administration on the same day that this bill uh, was sort of made public, the Commerce Department warned that you know, the U.S. needs to do something about this semiconductor shortage. And they really urged Congress to get moving past some legislation. And the bill um, includes $52 billion for the U.S. semiconductor industry, just for example. And that's actually something that the Senate, because we're talking about the House of Representatives right now, and the Senate actually included that in their own China bill, which the Senate passed over the summer. So the White House last night after the bill was made public, they, they made it clear that they were very happy with this new bill from the House of Representatives. And, you know, this is something that we've reported on a lot over the last year. Uh, but the Biden administration has really been trying to turn this idea of competition with China into a kind of rallying cry to, you know, get people here in the U.S. on board with uh, things like investments in infrastructure, you know, in roads and bridges and ports. And then high-tech investments and things like semiconductors. And, you know, when the bill came out, uh, President Joe Biden released a statement saying that he thinks this bill will help the U.S. outcompete China. And that's how he's framing this bill. In his framing, it, you know, his public framing, it's about supply chains and innovation and, and jobs and things like that. And it just seems kind of ironic. There's this constant cultural war between the Republicans and the Democrats. It's over masks. It's over vaccines. It's over voting rights for black people in the US. But they all come together over this issue of China. It's the one uniting thing, it seems, in US politics right now. Yeah, this is a very rare issue. This question of US competition with China that has managed to get support across the entire political spectrum from the most left-wing members of Congress to the most right-wing members of Congress. It's really uncommon for an issue of such huge consequence to get this kind of broad bipartisan support. That's not to say this bill that was introduced last night is just going to pass the House of Representatives unanimously. You know, I was checking in with um, sources in Congress last night and um, especially today, and it's a 3,000 page bill we're talking about. So even, you know, people who work there still haven't had time to go through everything. Um, so they can't say exactly in detail, maybe every single piece of what they like or don't like in the bill. But there's already a sense that there could be some partisan fighting that you haven't necessarily seen on some of the other China legislation just yet. That being said, there is still a ways to go before this becomes law. This is the House of Representatives version of the bill. The Republicans are saying that this is a Democratic bill from within the House of Representatives. And the Senate, meanwhile, had passed its own gigantic China legislation half a year ago. And what's going to happen is if the House can pass this bill, then the House and Senate will have to get together and basically hash out their differences and come up with some kind of compromise that makes enough people happy in the House and Senate that it can actually pass and become law. And I'm sort of just casting forward this year and seeing that, of course, there's the uh, November midterm election. So that's obviously going to be just another focus of 
battle and I guess showboating about who gets to talk about bipartisanship and who gets to push their own agendas. But Jacob, when I read your story yesterday on SNP.com, the one thing that leapt out at me, given what we've heard from our man in Brussels, Finbar Birmingham, over the last months about Lithuania, is that the bill says the Secretary of State, quote, shall seek to enter into negotiations with appropriate officials from Taiwan's de facto embassy with the objective of renaming that de facto embassy from the Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative Office to the Taiwan Representative Office in the United States. This has been a huge thing in Lithuania, as we've covered in depth on this podcast, and this sounds not so much like poking the panda as stomping on its foot, Jacob. Right. We can guess that Beijing is not going to like this at all, but it is a fact that support for Taiwan in Washington right now in Congress is very, very high. And this is coming from both political parties from across the political spectrum. And the lawmakers were explicit right in the bill text where they're you know, writing about this provision that would potentially change the name of Taiwan's de facto embassy. They say that the name change or potential name change is, quote, reflective of the substantively deepening ties between Taiwan and the United States. You know, this is one pretty clear sign of where things are right now here in Washington. And I don't know if you remember, but towards the end of the Obama administration, you know, there was a push to rename the street in front of the Chinese embassy here after Liu Xiaobo, who was the Nobel Peace Prize winner, who was imprisoned in China and never quite made it through Congress. But while it was moving through the Senate, um, there was basically a threat from President Obama's team that they were going to veto the bill, you know, as in this was too aggressive of a, of a sort of rhetorical move. And now, six years later, we're talking about potentially renaming Taiwan's de facto embassy here with the name Taiwan in it. So this is sort of a sign of where things are. And, you know, that's not the only Taiwan item in this bill either. It, it goes beyond a potential name change to the office. Just a few examples. It would basically force if this becomes law, it would force the Secretary of State to come up with a plan to get Taiwan more involved in international organizations around the world. And that has been a real point of contention for a lot of people who say that Taiwan should be a part of organizations like the World Health Organization, you know, when there's a pandemic going on, things like that. The bill very explicitly affirms that the U.S. position is that Taiwan's security is important to the U.S., just sort of that basic fact. You know, the language is pretty clear even for a, a very dense piece of legislation. They call it, quote, a vital national security interest, end quote, to advance the security of Taiwan and its democracy. So there's more, but that does, you know, give some of a sense of what the mood is like right now in Congress when it comes to Taiwan. That really is fascinating. And, and as you say, you know, moving a lot further forward than under the Obama years where just renaming a street was uh, considered highly political. You can only guess the level of spice that will come from Beijing back in their response to this announcement. But Jacob, you mentioned the name of the Nobel Prize winning dissident author, uh, Lu Xiaobo. And it's interesting, his name pops up again in this proposed bill under this new plan for the US government to fund language centers, essentially to replace the Confucius centers uh, that have been accused in the US as well as the UK and Australia, of being centres for Beijing's influence in the hearts of universities across the West. Can you tell us more about this? 
Yeah, this bill authorizes $10 million a year to fund Chinese language learning. And, and the bill makes it clear that this is a substitute to the Confucius Institutes. You know, as the U.S. has cracked down on the Confucius Institutes here, there has been, you know, a sense among some people that we need to make sure that enough Americans are learning Chinese. But Jacob, when you say Chinese, it's a much broader umbrella than what we come to understand normally with these centers as teaching Mandarin. Right. The bill includes not just the study of Mandarin, but also Cantonese, Tibetan, Uyghur, and Mongolian, and other contemporary spoken languages of China. So this is quite broad. The people who wrote this bill clearly see a value in more Americans being able to you know, speak these languages, being able to communicate with people who speak them. And this is all part of this very broad sense of competition with China and this sort of competition of ideas with China as well. That's really interesting and look forward to seeing, you know, more details playing out about that. But, you know, turning back to Joe Biden, he had a phone call with Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida on Friday. Uh, we read that he's agreed to travel to Japan by May for the next formal meeting of the Quad. What does this bill have to say about the Quad, this formally sidelined meeting at the G20 that seems to be rising increasingly in strategic importance? Right. The bill sort of continues that trajectory for the quad, I would say. It, you know, one of the things it does, for example, if, if it were to become law, it, it would establish a working group for the, the four parliaments or congresses of the four quad countries. And that's the U.S., Japan, India, and Australia. And, you know, even authorizes, I think it's a, a million dollars a year for the next four years for the U.S. side to basically make this a real program where, you know, representatives from the four parliaments would be able to get together. It's a sign that this is increasingly important to the U.S. Well, it's very interesting. You know, we've got Joe Biden facing the midterm elections in November. We've got the Australian Prime Minister facing the electorate with the national elections there to be held by May. It looks like there's a lot going on in terms of symbolic and actual kind of moves as we say, towards the idea of formalizing this thing called the Quad. Now, let me just sort of wrap up here, Jacob, and ask, has there been any response so far from China's ambassador to the US, Qin Gang, or indeed from anyone in Beijing? Well, I imagine they're also taking their time to sift through the almost 3,000 pages of the bill. But we do know where China generally stands on most of the issues that have come up in this legislation. And they're generally not happy when the U.S. is pointing out things like human rights problems or getting closer to Taiwan. These are sensitive issues in the relationship from China's perspective. And it's, it's certainly, I think, fair to say, not going to make Beijing happy when they finish reading the text and get a sense of every detail that's in this bill. We're both going to be emailing our colleagues in the Beijing Bureau to hear more on that response. Jacob Fromer, you've probably got another thousand pages to read before dinner tonight <laughs> in Washington. Thank you so much for your time. We will, of course, read more news and analysis from you on scmp.com. Thanks so much for having me. 
As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com slash newsletters. Finbar, Birmingham, I know you've mentioned this before, but of all the nations you thought you were going to be focusing on when you left Hong Kong to become our European correspondent, I'm going to guess Lithuania wasn't at the top of your list. Not really. No, it wasn't wasn't anywhere near the top, but here we are and this is it. Like it's it's really sort of taken over the news cycle with regard to China. Cleverly in a way, it's engaged superpowers where others have failed to do so in European affairs. I think I've spoken before about how by playing the China card, you know, Lithuania has engaged the US in, in European affairs. Uh, it, also, we've seen that it's... Um, because China has, in, in 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 a sense, drawn other European countries into this dispute. And we'll talk about this, you know, the trade embargo that China's alleged to have launched against Lithuania has been extended to European countries and companies which have Lithuanian components in their supply chain. So the story started in Lithuania or with Lithuania, but it's grown arms and legs. It's now a Europe story. It is not something the Chinese don't like. They think it's a bilateral dispute. The European Union now sees it as an EU dispute. So, you know, what started out as David versus Goliath has now taken on some sort of new quasi superpower <laughs> standoff. Um, so it's 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 really been interesting to see it evolve. Uh, it wasn't really uh, didn't have it in the bingo card, but you know, but as we, we head into another busy year, it looks as though this one's going to roll and roll. Indeed. So let me recap. While the European Union's agenda is dominated by debating whether to send troops to the Ukrainian border, this week it's decided to send in the lawyers to Geneva over China's economic coercion of Lithuania. So what's happened there? Yeah, it's the very first stages of a prolonged, inevitably prolonged trade dispute at the WTO, the World Trade Organization in Geneva. On Thursday, uh, we're talking Friday morning, so yesterday, the European Union filed a request for consultation, which is the opening gambit in this thing, which can go on for years. And this is essentially a request for China to hold consultations about what is perceived to be economic coercion, trade measures which are seen by the European Union to be against the World Trade Organization rules. Now, the European Union started an investigation at the start of December, uh, you know, so it's taken about seven or six or seven weeks to gather the evidence for this. It's in, spent about five weeks interviewing Lithuanian businesses, just to sort of <laughs> dial back slightly, just for those who maybe weren't overly familiar with the subject. Basically, Lithuania hosted a Taiwanese representative office, controversially named because the rest of them are called Taipei representative offices and in return found that its exports were essentially frozen from the Chinese market. So the European Union has been investigating this. Brussels says it has has evidence of a refusal to clear Lithuanian goods through Chinese customs ports, rejection of import applications from Lithuania, pressuring companies operating from EU member states other than Lithuania to remove imports from their supply chains. So it's 
it's got what it sees as enough evidence to launch a case at the WTO, um, and that's what they did this week. Uh, they sent letters to China on Wednesday, 24 hours ahead of you know the announcement, and said, you know, we, we request consultation. This is a sort of formality. You know, they have to do this dance. China can either say yes, we will we will consult, and this would be an opportunity for the European Union to ask China questions and maybe to resolve it bilaterally, diplomatically. Otherwise, after 60 days, they will ask the World Trade Organization to create a disputes panel. And then this case will be sort of put into, you know, a sort of arbitration panel where they will fight it out. And the lawyers will be, uh, you know, fighting their cases in in the Geneva Trade Courts. Uh, And, you know, as we know, WTO cases can run and run and run. So very opening steps. The European Union yesterday was briefing us and, you know, they, they said that on one note, this is an unprecedentedly, is that a word? It's a, it's a, it's a, an extraordinarily fast evolution of this. This is um, because of the urgency they see of the situation. It's never happened before, they said, that a, comp- a country has been entirely blocked from another country's market in their in their sort of uh, experience. This is coming from senior EU trade officials I was talking to yesterday. So, th- so they've done this within a matter of, of weeks. Usually these cases take months or years to build. And this shows the sense of urgency. The European Union wants to settle this diplomatically. It doesn't want to escalate this. This was another clear message. They want China to back down on this. I get a sense that they're hoping that by the time this WTO case comes even to the courts, they will have their own tools ready to deal with this. We've discussed their anti-coercion instrument, which is a sort of retaliatory tool that the EU would be allowed to hit back on China. They're hoping that might be ready by the end of the year. That's what the European Trade Commissioner told me in response to a question at the press conference yesterday. So I I see the WTO as the only right to recourse that the EU has now at the moment. They had to do this. They've done it as quickly as they can. They're confident that they've got enough evidence. But look, this is a dicey and a very, very complex case. It's not a straightforward trade tariff. See, in, you know, in the case of the Australian-China situation, which I know you've discussed on the podcast before, Australia was able to say, look, China has put duties on our barley. Uh, you know, there's none of that in, in the case of Lithuania. There's no duties. There's no tariffs. There's there's no dumping. This is a, This is basically an unofficial embargo. It's a boycott, which is described by European Union officials as a silent boycott because the government hasn't admitted it. The government says this is an outbreak of patriotism among Chinese importers who simply don't want to buy goods from countries that question China's sovereignty. And one more point that I'll finish on before we move on is the European Union, uh, the European Commission, should I say, has really got two areas of competency which are devolved from the member states, and that is the areas of competition and trade. The competency for trade means the European Union manages and governs the trade policy of its 27 member states. And in most other issues, the member states retain their own sovereignty, but they have delegated it to the EU. So this means that by attacking one EU member in Lithuania, it's attacked the single market. China, according to EU officials, is very upset that the EU has waded into this and saying this is a bilateral political dispute. Why are you guys getting involved? I don't know why they're thinking this because it was inevitable that if you did launch something like this against an EU member, that ultimately the European Union would get involved. Not only that, because German, Swedish, Spanish and French and Finnish companies that I know of 
have also been caught up in this. It's become very much a broad European issue. It has hardened the resolve of some European Union members who didn't want to get involved in the first place now that they wonder maybe we'll be next or they also see that some of their companies are upset by this. We had the German Business Council, the BDI, the Federation of German Industry, come out yesterday with strong support for this, despite the fact that the German political establishment has a wee, been a wee bit wavery on this. They haven't been the most um, supportive of, of Lithuania. So anyway, that's just to, to sort of give you a wee bit of context to show that this is not seen anymore as a bilateral dispute in Brussels Yes, there's been some people who are wondering why on earth has Lithuania crossed the road to pick a fight with China. Perhaps that's a discussion we can have another day. But in this situation, it's very much seen as a, as a European matter. Now, Fibau, I have to mention I've had the great privilege over the past couple of years of hearing you analysing and reporting on the ins and outs of the World Trade Organization back when this podcast was called the US-China Trade War Update. So what's the reality of this move by the EU to take China to the WTO? What happens after this announcement? Yeah, as I said, it'll take 60 days uh, for the consultation period. One little note to add on this is that the, the spokesperson for the US trade representative yesterday took to Twitter to say that the US would request to join the consultation. I'm not, not sure whether that would happen. What would, what would have to happen there would be they would have to ask China's permission if they could join what do you think China would say if America tried to join? Um, it's a short discussion. That, <laughs> I, I don't think it's going to go on for too long. And then after that, they would have some sort of a right to file an independent uh, application with the WTO if they could prove that some, some of their companies had been maybe indirectly caught up in this or something. But anyway, I think that's sort of pie in the sky. Um, 60 days for the consultation period. After that, the request to form a panel. Usually what happens is, uh, this happens at the, the, at the at a meeting in Geneva every month. One country which has a grievance would say, we want to form a panel. The other country would say, no, they have to set it aside for one month until the next month, after which at the second occasion they can say, we want to form a panel, and it's all, almost like automatically formed. That'll take a while. So, you know, you, you're talking months and months here before they even start arguing the dispute. That usually takes a year on average, 13 months, something like that. Now, what we've discussed in the past is the, the lack of the appeals court at the WTO, the appellate body, which stretching back to the Obama era, because of grievances the US has had with how the WTO works, they've been refusing to um, approve new judges, new appeals judges to be added to the appeals court. So there's basically no appeals court now. However, there is an alternative. The multi-party interim appeal arrangement is an sort of like a, you know, a, a shadow appeals court, which was formed by a whole bunch of other members who were a little bit angered by the fact that the US had essentially hijacked a crucial function of the WTO. So the news on this one is that both China and the European Union are members of this. So this is not a case which could get locked in the deadlock. What has happened for members who are not involved in the MPIA is that they've been able to appeal into the void. Essentially, you lose a case, you lodge an appeal, there's no judges to hear the appeal, it's locked. This is not going to happen with this case. There's an appeals court alternative to the official one that they can appeal it in. So this one it will be resolved at the WTO, I suppose, if if 
it keeps going. The European Union Trade Commissioner Valdis Dombrovsky told us yesterday that if China stops its coercion, the European Union will drop its case. Now, this was an interesting point because what happens if this case rumbles on for a year or two years? China decides, right, okay, let's let's cut this out before we get to the end of the judgment and drops the coercion. At this point, does the European Union drop the case? Um, And don't forget, at this point, you may have a bunch of Lithuanian businesses that have gone bust. And then the next month, maybe China takes into Slovenia because they're also having discussions about a Taiwan office. You can sort of see this is a discussion that's going on now among trade experts in Europe. It's like, well, you know, why would you drop the case? Would you not sort of view it as a precedent? But anyway, that's neither here nor there. We'll we'll see what happens on that front. But it's, it's a test case, this one, because as I said, it doesn't really fall into the usual category of tariffs, duties, dumping, you know, that often we see in, in WTO parlance. This is a, a totally, totally different fish altogether. So let me take this back out of the courts and back to the people, essentially. You've previously written about the pushback both within the Lithuanian government and from opinion polls saying people are not really interested in battling Beijing and taking this economic hit over whether a sign on an office says Taiwan or Taipei. But you've since confirmed maybe there's some wriggle room in what actual name goes on that sign being explored. What's happening there? The first thing to sort of highlight is that there's a domestic dispute here. The president of Lithuania, Gitanas Noseda, and the foreign minister, Gabrielis Landsbergis, don't get on. You know, this is sort of common knowledge in Lithuania. People that I've spoken to have told me this. And the president saw that this was quite unpopular. And so he came out saying it's a mistake. You know, so there's been this bit of back and forth. A foreign ministry poll, as you mentioned, proved that this is something that's not terribly popular among Lithuanian people. Only 1% said they strongly agreed with it. So in this environment, the foreign ministry proposed that they would change the Mandarin naming of the office, which currently is translated roughly as Taiwan representative office. They would change it to come in line with the English, which is Taiwanese representative office. Now, if you've been following this, then you realize there's not a cat's chance in hell of this making a blind bit of difference because it's the English name actually that the Chinese have said they have a problem with anyway. So by bringing the the Chinese name in line with the English name, it's not going to change anything. The argument being from the foreign ministry was that this would show that it's about the Taiwanese people rather than the territory of Taiwan. Seemed a wee bit whimsical to me. What happened was they didn't even raise this with the Taiwanese. The Taiwanese were not consulted on this. They spoke to the US, they spoke to American officials, and they asked what their opinion on this might be. The US told them to wise up, basically said, that's not going to help. You know, Chinese state media has run a whole series of stories saying that a mere name change is not going to make any difference at the moment. I think that the consensus is that the Chinese don't want the office to exist under any name. I spoke to someone very senior in the Lithuanian foreign ministry who said, I says, well, why are you proposing this if you thought that it wouldn't make any difference? There had been some pushback within the European Union, among other member states who thought, as I said earlier, Lithuania was crossing the road to pick a fight with China and that they were stubborn and intransigent. 
this was supposed to show that Lithuania was willing to negotiate, that they're not stubborn, that they are not intractable. And, you know, it was a throwing a bone essentially to to those who had said that the that the Lithuanians were not were not willing to to show any flexibility. It looks very tokenistic to me. It's been dropped. The foreign minister has now said that there are no ongoing discussions to change the name. You know, it's, so it seems as though that for now they're committed to this, but you know, it's they're also you know they they want to get reelected. Uh, you know, in three years, uh, God knows what will happen between now and then. You know, there's a lot of other stuff going on that Lithuania is. Lithuanians are more concerned about than China. You know, we talked about the buildup of troops, the Russian situation, Ukraine, Belarus. Like, there's a whole world of problems they have. You know, it's 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 complex domestic politics being played out, airing their dirty laundry in public. I suppose would be would be one way of of describing it. Fimba, I want to turn to another issue that the EU has raised with Beijing in the past week. This is about the issue of goods made in Xinjiang. Again, something we've spoken about extensively on this podcast and you've reported on extensively at SEMP.com. This is about the products of what the EU says is forced labour. Of course, Beijing denies this. EU is weighed in strongly on this just recently, but the ban on these goods was announced last September. What is going on here? What is happening with the EU, China, and the issue of goods made in Xinjiang? Yes. So it's a complicated one. I'll do my best to simplify it. The Basically, last September, Ursula von der Leyen, who's the European Commission president, announced to everybody's surprise that there was going to be a European Union ban on forced labour. This was widely seen as being directed at China. You know, the US has gone hard on goods made in Xinjiang. The problem is she hasn't really followed up with it, nor has she really given any direction to anybody else in the European Union. Uh, my understanding is that uh, she thought this would be a great thing to announce and then somebody else would figure out the details. So you've got a bit of an internal battle as to who has ownership of this and nobody really wants ownership of it because it could get messy and because it's very difficult to administer. As we've seen in the US, this is a very sensitive issue, but it's also incredibly burdensome administratively. So you've got a situation now where the European Union is next month supposed to unveil a draft supply chain due diligence legislation. That would be something that requires companies to have visibility of their supply chains. It's supposed to sort of root out things like forced labor, like child labor, like sustainability issues. This is in the works and the Department of Trade wants to wrap any forced labor ban into this. So that would mean that there is no separate ban, no import ban, essentially. They want to avoid a US-like import ban. The US has a, has various tiers of, of this. They have bans on companies in Xinjiang. They have bans on certain products from Xinjiang. And they're currently processing a ban on all stuff from, from Xinjiang. The Department of Trade in the European Union does not want to go down this route. Now, conveniently, if this was to be wrapped into the other bill, then it wouldn't be the Department of Trade's problem because it would go under the Department of Justice and the Department of the Internal Market, the DG Just and the DG, DG Grow. Sorry for the European Union jargon here. But it's, it seems to me like there's a little bit of, well, we know this is going to be messy. We, we want it off our books. 
and you know possibly they don't believe in the in the sort of integrity or the efficacy of a, of an import ban sabine wyand who's the director general of trade spoke at length the other day about this and she sort of talked about the ways that these things can be easily contravened by third companies popping up here and there about rerouting it through trade diversion via other countries all, all the arguments we heard about tariff avoidance during the trade war, about what's happening in, in Xinjiang and how goods are routing their way through Southeast Asia and so on. The One of the reasons why it's really complicated is because Xinjiang cotton is so like omnipotent. Like It's 80% of the Chinese cotton industry. It's 20% of the global supply. So to ban products made in Xinjiang in some way or other and you know the European Union would say this is not just a ban aimed at Xinjiang it's a sort of it's forced labor first and foremost you know it's very very tricky to do this it places a lot of burden on the importer who have to really sort of know their supply chains inside out which again is one of the reasons why YN said that this should be part of the supply chain due diligence if you know your supply chain inside out as the due diligence legislation is supposed to lay out then there shouldn't be any need for a ban because there wouldn't be any forced labor in your supply chain you know you can see where the logic is there i suppose and I recall very clearly back when you were working in our office at Times Square, if you, buy, you showed me a diagram that looked like a handful of spaghetti thrown on a page, and you said this is the supply chain of cotton from Xinjiang uh, to, to Europe to the US. It's a very, very tangled situation. So Incredibly, yeah, it's incredibly complex. It's really difficult to, to get any visibility on it. I think nobody can really say with any great, great veracity that they can understand the entire supply chain in this industry, particularly because in China this, these days, and particularly in Xinjiang, it's so difficult to conduct any auditing. How can you possibly be supposed to do due diligence when the government is, is not allowing a lot of inspections to take place and those that are taking place are allegedly being done under duress? A lot of the big auditing firms have now refused to conduct audits in Xinjiang because they're difficult to do properly. It's quite clear cut in the US. I think the US does want to have an import ban from Xinjiang. It doesn't want any Xinjiang made goods entering the US market because their assumption is that everything's tainted with forced labor. The European Union's Director General for Trade, Sabine Wyand, the other day used the example of a drop of pasties in a glass of water. You put a wee drop in and the whole glass is tainted. So there's an awareness of the complexity here. They've looked at the US example and they've seen how difficult this is. And I think the European Union is nowhere near where the US is on its journey with China. The Directorate General of Department of Trade is very pro-business. It's sort of not seen as the kind of people who would want to disrupt things in that way. So let's see how it goes. There are important voices who are arguing for a forced labor ban, many of them in the, in the parliament and so on. But there's a sort of a battle underway at the moment. If they do decide to wrap this forced labor ban in with the supply chain due diligence, I doubt we're going to be seeing that bill next month, but we'll, we'll keep on top of it. It seems that global attention is, is once more being refocused on Xinjiang. Yeah, and Catherine Wong in Beijing, our excellent colleague, had a great scoop on this 
this week, yesterday, saying that the, the UN rights chief, Michelle Bachelet, will be allowed in to inspect Xinjiang, but under strict conditions. She's not allowed to say it's an inspection. This has to be a friendly visit. I'm using air quotes here. She will w- withhold her report on human rights in Xinjiang until after the Beijing Winter Olympics. The US had been pushing for her to release this report before the Olympics, but it certainly seems though that's not going to happen because it's now the 28th of, of January and the Olympics start in a few days. <laughs> so um, it will be back on the agenda. You know, it's it's never really left the agenda in America. It sort of rumbles in the background here. There are more pressing issues at hand, but it's, 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 it's always going to be there, right? And fundamentally it gets down to, do people really care where their T-shirts, solar cells and tomatoes come from in some respects? Well, I think that the, the reality of it is if people really do have problems with sustainability and supply chains and with ethics and supply chain, they have to pay more for what they wear and what they consume. Like, so you can't really have any grievances about this sort of stuff if, if, you're, if you're not willing to pay a wee bit more for what you're, what you're consuming. Fibar Birmingham, as always, very interesting, very educational, and we will find you on smp.com filing regularly from Brussels. Thank you very much. That's all we have for you in this week's edition of China Geopolitics. The headlines this week are, of course, going to be dominated by the opening week of the Winter Olympics in Beijing. But as always, there's so much more going on in our region. And as always, you can keep up to date with it all on SEMP.com. Follow us on Twitter at SEMP News. My name is Jared Watt, wishing you Kung Hei Fa Choi, Gong Si Fa Kai. And as we say more and more here in Hong Kong, here's hoping you can stay positive and test negative. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.